Welcome to the Customer Experience Management Podcast, hosted by Anders Gustafsson and Carlos Velasco. In this episode, Carlos interviews Dr. Chloe Priest about her work on art and customer experiences. Welcome everyone to the Customer Experience Management Podcast. Um, today we have a new uh, post, post podcast episode. Uh, we have a very special guest. Her name is Chloe Prissy. Uh, she's uh, an academic professor at Royal Holloway uh, University of London uh, with lots of interest in art production and consumption. Um, she's doing some very, very interesting uh, research on uh, art-mediated uh, uh, experiences and has published it in several journals, uh, in, such as uh, the Journal of Consumer Research, European Journal of Marketing, and others. So today we're going to be talking about art experiences or art in the context of customer experiences. Um, so I would like to welcome Chloe to the podcast. And uh, before we dive into the topic, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, the research that you're up to, and uh, yeah, your work in general. Thank you so much, Carlos. Thank you for the warm welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so uh, as you said, I'm Chloe Priest. I'm a senior lecturer in marketing at Royal Holloway University of London. Um, and my research focuses on marketing, but specifically within the arts and creative industries. Um, and as you said, both from kind of the production perspective as well as the consumption perspective. So most of my work contributes to interdisciplinary debates. And I'm particularly interested in value creation in the marketplace. So thinking not just about economic value, but also the sociocultural context in which value creation takes place. So particularly kind of exposing overlooked value creation actors or actions. This is uh, fantastic. You know, like in recent days, I've been thinking a lot about uh, non-fungible tokens and value creation, you know, in that, in that place, because many people really wonder about this idea of why would somebody pay hundreds of uh, dollars, in some cases, millions of dollars, you know, for a, for a digital asset that has no physical world value, you know. So probably your research can inform a lot that kind of like debate of where yeah. is the value in non-fungible tokens, right? <laughs> yeah, so I think we'll come back to NFTs later on uh, because I have a lot of thoughts about them. I haven't done any specific research on them yet, but um, yeah, I do think uh, it, it's a kind of natural avenue for me to think about uh, these kind of, uh, of uh, intangible, shall we say, value creation. That is super interesting. Yeah, no, that's also a very fertile area of research. So I guess uh, we're just starting to think about it. So I will be happy to come back to to pick on your brain about this topic. Uh, so you work uh, in a sort of like a project uh, institute that is called Story Futures, um, actually with, with a, a couple of people that I know that are doing some interesting, very interesting work. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the work that is uh, being done at Story Futures? Yes, so I'm part of uh, quite a large grant, um, which is called Story Futures, and uh, they're based uh, in Royal Holloway, and it's a really uh, interdisciplinary uh, group. So there's quite a lot of us involved across different departments of the university. Um, so Story Futures um, is a kind of uh, research call, by it's part of um, a grant that comes from this new focus on challenge-based research by the UK government. Um, and it was part of the creative clusters uh, call uh, where the government wanted to set up kind of nine new creative clusters. So it's very much an industry focused project and it's specifically designed to fuel the growth of the immersive sector in the UK. Uh, so it's focused on research and development in next generation story forms, business models, data processes and audience behaviors. 
um, in kind of addressing uh, the immersive sector in the UK. And there's kind of two key parts to Story Futures. So Story Futures itself, which focuses mainly on these research and development projects with uh, creative businesses uh, within the kind of cluster, uh, which is based um, around kind of Greater London, uh, around uh, Egham, which is where the university is based. Um, and then there's also Story Futures Academy, which um, we uh, are in charge with in partnership with the National Film and Television School. Uh, which that one is nationwide in scope. So it delivers cutting edge training in immersive technology and immersive storytelling for uh, the traditional screen industries nationwide. So in terms of kind of story futures, the focus is usually on kind of challenge calls that fund innovation in story form. Uh, so tackling some of the kind of sector-wide barriers to innovation and growth. So usually that means working with SMEs and working with arts organizations and putting them in partnership so that they can solve problems together and create uh, new forms of kind of storytelling. Um, and there's various teams kind of designed around these calls. And my specific, the team that I'm part of, um, is looking at audience uh, research and audience insight into how audiences respond to these uh, immersive experiences. That sounds fascinating, you know, like one of the, the topics that we've been covering uh, with with other uh, academics in this podcast is the topic of digital transformations, you know, everything from uh, extended reality to artificial intelligence and all the different kind of like new technologies that allow more immersive experiences than the ones that we have seen in, uh, in the last decades or so. So this connects very well with sort of the context in which now we are designing uh, customer experiences or thinking about how audiences kind of like get immersed in a specific uh, storytelling, which of course is a key part of the, the customer journey. So that said, that connects very well with the next question that I had for you, which we are asking to many of our uh, guests, and that is, what are customer experiences for you? Uh, so, of course, there's lots of kind of possible definitions of customer experiences, um, and I know you've had quite a few already on the podcast. Um, in my mind, I would say kind of our daily lives are just constantly composed, uh, full of experiences. So an experience is just the kind of process of living through an event or events. And some of these have impact and leave an impression on us, and some of them we don't really kind of register that much. Um, now, if we're thinking of customer experiences specifically, then it's everything related to a business that affects a customer's perception and feelings about that business. So all the interactions that a customer has with uh, an organization over the life of their relationship with that organization, with that brand. Um, and in terms of my research, I think I'd actually widen this out further beyond just customers to think about consumers or audiences more generally. Um, as I think, uh, you know, you're not necessarily to be a customer, I think you need to buy, right? Mm -hmm. And in some cases, we're not necessarily buying, but we still have kind of significant feelings um, about uh, that brand or that organization or that company. Okay, that's, that's very nice. And, and I like that you're mentioning like the, 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 the word interactions, which connects very well with the, some of the, the research that you have been doing on the role of art in experiences. Uh, so my next question is basically about that, you know, what, what is the role of art in customer experiences uh, as a form of interaction that we can have, you know, either from brands or art itself. So what can we say about the role of art in customer experiences? Okay, that's another, that's another big question. And I yeah, think it's actually kind of two massive questions, one. <laughs> maybe. Um, I'll kind of separate it into two at least. Um, so I think firstly, we can think of the role of art or arts in general in customer experiences. And I think this is something that often kind of gets passed over, but actually it's really significant. 
uh, because it's clear that the society we're living in now is kind of more visual perhaps than ever before, right? We're constantly interacting with screens through kind of our eyes. Um, so the emphasis on the visual, I think, is becoming more and more significant. Um, and then if we're thinking about kind of customer experiences, you know, if we think about Pine and Gilmore's book on the experience economy, aesthetics and design are really at the heart of that experience, and they make that quite clear. Um, so, you know, more than just the visual, of course, there's other kind of uh, forms of kind of sensing and knowing. So sound, for example, is very important as well. And the arts are kind of really crucial for that. Uh, the second part, I think, of the question is what about when we consider art experiences themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And again, I think there's a tendency to often dismiss the arts for governments not to think the arts are important, but um, the entertainment industries financially are very significant. In the UK, the creative industries are kind of one of the key sectors which are still actually producing things within the country, right? Uh, we're not really manufacturing anymore, but we are still making kind of world leading um, arts experiences. Um, so, you know, we only need to kind of think of relatively new players like Netflix or Spotify in terms of their kind of uh, significance, um, but also kind of more traditional players, if we're thinking of visual arts, perhaps uh, auction houses like Christie's and Sotheby's, which are really kind of economic powerhouses. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I think what I argue a lot in my research is that uh, you know, of course, we can apply marketing models, marketing techniques, marketing tools to um, arts and arts experiences and artist careers. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes they do struggle with that aspect in terms of how knowing how to talk to their audience and how to communicate with their audience. But I also think as marketers, we have a lot to learn from artists and from arts experiences, because in many ways, they're kind of ahead of the curve. And, you know, if we think about what we like to do in our kind of leisurely time, Usually when most people come home from work, you know, what do they tend to do? They tend to either kind of, you know, open up their laptops, switch on the TV and kind of watch something uh, so often or play something. And often that's kind of uh, an arts experience. I cannot agree more with you. You know, like there is so much stuff that we can learn from artists in general. Uh, even from my own research, I do research uh, on multisensory experiences, how different senses contribute to our experiences. And one of the inspiration that we typically have is from art, you know, from... Uh, people like Kandinsky, you know, who really used to uh, have like a very multi-sensory experience when doing his art or perfumers, you know, that were talking about the relationship between the senses well before we actually started studying those relationships. So I completely agree with you. We can learn so much from the arts um, and also the arts can learn much about, you know, like the, the research as well. There is kind of like a very good opportunity there. I guess one of the things that many people uh, naively, I guess, consider is that um, art is something that is far from us. But you're saying, you know, art is so many things, right, that we interact mm -hmm. with. So, I mean, I don't expect that we solve this question here, but what would you generally say that, that is art in this context, you know, because uh, it could be so many things, but at the same time, people sometimes find it so away from them. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think a lot of people are kind of scared of the term art because there is this sense kind of traditionally that the arts are elite, right? And I think that's something that, uh, uh, you know, we're, I think in many ways it's not, uh, but there is that kind of sense, you know, um, uh, that the arts are somehow elite and uh, somehow they're far away from our kind of daily lives. Um, and I think that's quite a dangerous perception. And I think, um, uh, you know, it, it's really kind of limiting uh, because uh, there's this idea of kind of high art and low art and that somehow it's only kind of a positive experience if it's high art. But actually, I mean, I think, you know, art is really significant to our lives. It's in everything we do all the time. You know, I mean, 
everything has been designed to some aspect, right? So design, if we just think about it in terms of design, there's an artistic element to design in terms of the clothes we buy, uh, everything. You know, what we wear, uh, what, which restaurants we decide to go to, which brands we're kind of interested in, in terms of their logos and their design and all that kind of thing. Uh, so there's just kind of so much there to be unpacked. Uh, and then thinking about kind of artistic experiences, yeah, it doesn't have to be the opera. You know, the opera is wonderful, but there's many other different types of art forms, whether it's kind of, you know, I don't know, grime music or street art or whatever it is, um, which can also kind of be quite fulfilling. And that is totally art. That is fantastic. And also it's a, it's a sort of like an approach that makes it more relatable. I guess I wish many people would talk about art the way you're talking, because it really makes it more relatable. Art is so much part and so embedded in our everyday lives, but sometimes... Uh, the sort of like, uh, yeah, separation that we make on art being kind of like something more exclusive does not help to kind of like keep approaching it in our real lives. Um, all right, so you're talking about that some of the work that you 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 guys are doing at Story Futures is about immersive uh, storytelling, and I guess there is something quite interesting that I have been witnessing myself, and is that uh, you see a lot of development in certain arts, for example more artificial intelligence powered art uh, uh, installations. You see a lot of uh, extended reality installations as well, like from artists, but also companies trying to use kind of like extended reality, uh, collaborating with artists to develop immersive experiences. But something that I see is that there is not really like a, like a, like a model or something that tells us how the different digital transformations are crossing with the arts such that people in the business of customer experiences can use them to design experiences. So my question for you is, and, and I guess this is also a, a relatively fertile topic, but what what is the role of immersive art experiences when it comes to customers and consumers? Uh-huh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, you raise some kind of interesting points there in terms of the kind of diversity of uh, what immersive art experiences there could be uh, or there already are and, and, and how we kind of classify that. And I think the kind of key point is that this is a very kind of changing technology and it's constantly being developed. So it really kind of, um, you know, we can see kind of huge potential, but I don't think it's quite there yet in terms of how that's really going to kind of affect us in our daily lives, perhaps. Um, but um, I do want to kind of take a step back because generally when we think about immersive, we think about, I'm, I'm assuming you're kind of referring to the extended re reality spectrum and augmented reality, mixed reality and virtual reality. Um, but actually kind of the notion of kind of being immersed is not new. And if we're thinking about arts experiences, it's actually got a huge history. And, um, uh, you know, one of the questions we asked many of our interviewees as part of the Story Futures project was, you know, what is the most immersive experience you can think of? What was the experience that kind of really immersed you the most? And most of the time, even though some of these participants have done a lot of virtual reality or augmented reality, most of the time they don't say that. They say, oh, you know, either they take it very literally and they talk about swimming, for example, where you're immersed in a particular, well, body of water in that, that case. That's fantastic. Um, but also they often kind of talk about reading a book, for example, and being really immersed in a book. Um, so I think we have to remember that, you know, immersive is not new. Immersive theater has been around for quite a while now. But it's clear that these new technologies do allow uh, consumers to feel immersed and present in worlds or realities um, or to kind of experience real world experiences uh, that perhaps they, they wouldn't have access to um, otherwise. So in that sense, it is kind of really interesting in terms of the potential um, for that.
I love uh, that definition that you're making about uh, immersion because in the end it's, it's true, it's not new and this is something that we also forget sometimes when we talk about technology, you know, we, we are excited about the word technology, but, you know, fire was technology when exactly. we first yeah. uh, used it, right? So it's just simply we have different technologies, but the technology has always been there as a way to sort of manipulate and relate to our environments. And it's the same with the concept of immersion, like a deep meditation can be more immersive than mm-hmm. a virtual reality experience. It's just these technologies perhaps facilitate certain processes, uh, but do not necessarily are uh, limiting the scope of what uh, immersiveness is. Um, Actually, I just wanted to pick up on that because uh, you were asking for a model and I'm not, uh, uh, my research generally does not come up with uh, models because it tends to be more qualitative and subjective. Uh, But we have actually kind of published a report with Story Futures uh, where we do come up with a kind of audience toolkit, we call it, or a framework. Um, And what we look at, and I think this is particularly useful for anybody who wants to design an immersive experience, is thinking about how the user is at the heart of that experience. So the toolkit is basically a system of coordinates uh, formed by two axes. So one is stretched between place and time and the other between platform and genre. And the framework is designed to be kind of used before even kind of uh, embarking on the process of designing an immersive experience and then kind of returning to it iteratively as you're developing that experience. So really grounding the experience in a wider consideration of the affordances of that specific technology, that specific platform that's being used, and really thinking about the audience that it's uh, speaking to. Because what we found is that often, uh, you know, particularly with artists, they tend to get very excited and have certain ideas about what they want to do, but they never really consider who the audience is going to be. And Uh, What we don't want this framework to be is be prescriptive and kind of tell the artist what to do, because that's the beauty of art, that they have their own creative Mm. ideas and it comes from their own vision. Um, And if you kind of damage that in any way, I think it makes it quite inauthentic as an experience. But at the same time, there is a need for the artist and for the creators to think about, okay, who do we actually want uh, to be speaking to? And what, like when we're talking about technologies in particular, what technologies are these people actually going to have access to and what are they comfortable with doing? And if you don't think about this from the kind of very beginning, then it can become very problematic at the last minute because you're not necessarily going to be speaking to the people you want to uh, speak to. So the framework is really useful in kind of grounding the experience in a wider consideration of the affordances of the technology um, and, uh, you know, thinking about how it fits into people's lives, right? What kind of places do they go to? What time of, what kind of times are they available at? How long are they willing to be within that experience? If we're talking about something like virtual, virtual reality, uh, you know, people are generally only willing to be in a headset for about 20 minutes, then it gets heavy, you get uh, motion sickness. Um, So thinking about how it kind of fits into their lives and the kind of flow of everyday living, but also thinking about the platform and genre helps us understand and select the right platform, the right device to be used, um, and thinking about uh, the kind of genre-based style and aesthetic qualities that are available with these various platforms and devices. Um, And as I said, at the heart of the framework is really thinking about the user whose experience is shaped by those uh, four elements. This framework, I think it's a fantastic tool and I will be uh, uh, just taking it later. I'll ask for the link and I will just post it together with the podcast so our audience can can access it because it's a really, really interesting framework and it it really reflects on some 
some questions that, you know, like I always go through in my classes and that I tell some of the companies that I work with. Some companies come and say like, oh, wow, I'm super excited about this uh, virtual reality technology or this augmented reality technology. Let's use it. And the first question that I ask them is, do you know if your target market has a VR headset? To start mm-hmm. with, it's a very simple question. It's what you say, you know, sometimes the answer is like, maybe our customers are not yet there or maybe won't, won't, won't ever be. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes you just ask yourself the question, you know, I have other companies that want, wants to use, want to use that specific technology in another country. And you check the statistics of how many people have a smartphone in that specific market, and sometimes it's less than half. So if you don't have the smartphone and you want to use augmented reality, what's the point? <laughs> right? No, exactly. So really thinking through, and also thinking not just about whether they have the technology, but also, you know, I think there's such excitement over these technologies and for a good reason, there's some really wonderful experiences that can be made with them, but it's also often like, are we just doing this to seem cool or is there a reason why it's in virtual reality? Because what we found, so we've done a longitudinal study where we kind of gave headsets or lent headsets to young people for periods of up to six months, just to see what they would do with it in their daily lives and whether it does fit into their kind of current entertainment options or not. And what we found is really they only find it worthwhile if um, there's something about it that it's worth seeing in VR versus watching on their phone or on their laptop or on their TV. Uh, Because otherwise, you know, if it could just be seen in another form, in another kind of media. Why the hassle? Why bother? Because it is extra work in a way. You know, you need to put the headset on, you need to create space, you need to take the time. You need to make sure it's charged. So there's a lot of frictions involved. So it has to be kind of worth the while. Which is, it, it connects very nicely with a podcast that I recorded with Olivia Petit, which what the question which she was asking is not whether you should or not use the technology, but for what purpose? Like, what is the purpose on the one hand? And on the second hand is just focus on your customer, focus on the consumer, focus on the user, the audience. In the end, technologies come and go. Uh, what matters is that person that is going to be accessing them, using them, relating to them, and feeding them into their lives. So I, I, I like that approach that you're mentioning. Okay, this has been super, super interesting uh, so far, uh, Chloe. Thank you for, for all your uh, insights. I have, uh, let's say, some three more questions for you, uh, if that's all right. The first one is, so we're talking a little bit about these uh, immersive experiences, and I want to clarify that by saying that I not only mean now mediated by technology, but immersive experiences in general. And then we have art. So what is the role of art in immersive experiences? Um, Tricky question. I mean, that's another big one, I imagine, but. (laughs) (laughs) It is a big one, and I'm not quite sure how to answer it, except that I think, um, I think for most things, um, art is important, right? I think as, as, beyond a kind of certain level of, you know, safety and uh, just being able to live. I think what makes life enjoyable often is kind of relationships, arts, uh, you know, the kind of all that kind of aspect of life. Uh, So I think if we're thinking about designing experiences that customers actually want to be engaged in, um, I think art is really significant in terms of kind of getting the message across. And of course, you know, if you think about the most successful brands, they're excellent storytellers. They're excellent in terms of designing a certain aesthetic that people want to be involved with and often kind of, you know, to the point where they're creating tattoos of the brand or whatever it is, you know. <laughs> um, so it's really thinking about that. And I think in terms of the immersive, perhaps it, there's kind of wider scope there. Um, because you're also talking about space in a way that uh, you couldn't before with with um, uh, screen technology. 
so there's that kind of added dimension of, okay, it can be artistic, but it can also kind of take us um, in really kind of different directions and actually enter kind of new perspectives and new worlds um, in, in a different way. Uh, because you're really, you really feel like you're there because of this immersion and presence. That is excellent. Okay, the, the last two questions. The, the last question is one that I always ask to all, all our guests, but then this one is one that I want to connect with the things that we were talking about the, the, the beginning, and is when we talk about non-fungible tokens, you know, mm -hmm. uh, for those of you who uh, don't know, you will have to Google it because we don't have enough time to discuss all the details of non-fungible tokens. We will have a podcast later on about the topic, but is you were talking about value uh, in your research, and in, in the context of value, I'm very intrigued about why are people assigning so much value to digital assets that you know they are just simply representing perhaps something that is not necessarily tangible mm -hmm. and i guess you can draw a parallel with services and you know like with other sort of like a, a contexts but but it's really intriguing for me i don't know what are your thoughts about this whole context of uh, nfts I have a lot of thoughts about it. Please. <laughs> so um, I think the first thing to note is there's been a huge amount of hype, right? And generally when there's media hype, that means uh, that there's kind of economic interest, shall we say, um, being uncovered. And, you know, there's obviously been some kind of massive news stories, uh, most significantly probably Beeple selling his uh, NFT at Christie's for $6.6 .6 million. Um, um, for 66 million, sorry. And um, so it's it's thinking about how much of that is hype and how much of that is there something actually there, right? And of course, it's not there in a tangible form. It's completely intangible. Um, so I think in terms of kind of general implications of NFTs, I think it's quite exciting. I think there's a huge amount of potential, particularly if we're thinking about something about like virtual reality, where we could really perhaps enter the art piece in a way that you can't with other forms of, you know, looking at a painting, uh, in a museum. Um, and I think that's that's quite exciting. And if we think about gaming and things like Fortnite, there's obvious kind of implications there. And of course, kind of brands are already kind of getting into that and creating their own F NFTs. Uh -huh. um, but I think kind of the wider kind of, um, in terms of thinking about the market right now, um, there's obviously some kind of real ethical issues um, uh, around NFTs. So there's a lot of scams, um, you know, like oh, yeah. kind of cryptocurrencies, it's kind of riddled with kind of various scams. So I think uh, Bank Banksy recently um, sold an NFT through his website or somebody bought an NFT through Banksy's website. And then Banksy said that he hadn't, like it wasn't his, that it had been a scam and he'd been hacked. Now with Banksy, of course, you never know. It could be him. Yeah, it could be a statement, right? right? In a way. It could just be a good prank because he's also an excellent marketer. Uh -huh. um, but uh, there are a huge amount of scams, scams where uh, you know you pay for something and then you never get it. And there's a lot of people being ripped off. Um, and then of course, there's the kind of energy side in terms of these are not good for the environment, right? Because um, like, uh, because it relies on cryptocurrencies, um, it's really kind of ener energy inefficient. Um, and uh, it's really problematic in terms of kind of the amount of energy it uses um, because it's like uh, the system is like with Bitcoin, you know, it involves a network of computers uh, that use advanced cryptography to decide whether transactions are value, valid or not. Um, so I think in that sense, it's kind of, it's very problematic. But if we're thinking about value more generally, 
Um, I think, um, you know, in, like people tend to want to kind of buy something and actually have a piece, right? So you want to buy, if you're buying a piece of art, you want the painting up on your wall. Well, not in all cases. Uh, in some cases, it's just for investment and it stays in some storage unit somewhere. Um, but most of the time when we think of buying, we think about buying something and getting something in return. But I think, um, funnily enough, I think there's a paradox because if we're saying NFTs are currently really bad for the environment, I actually think focusing on intangible value could be very good for the environment in the long term, in that we pretty much have everything we need in order to be happy these days, in order to live very comfortably. And the problem is, is we're producing too much. Um, so if we're thinking about the kind of wider sense of value, we need to value the things we already have more, or we need to value intangible things more in order uh, to kind of have a, a better planet, essentially, <laughs> which has a future and which yeah. isn't burning. Um, so I think in that sense, it's really interesting to think about these forms of intangible values and what that can offer. And again, we tend to think of it as something very new, but it's not new. You know, performance artists or uh, uh, have been doing kind of intangible work for, for many, many years now. Um, and some collectors have been buying these. Most collectors, again, tend to prefer the kind of traditional painting on a wall, but sometimes you can pay for something which isn't actually there, but you've still, you still own it in a way. And that can be valuable to certain people, but it's about actually perceiving that value. Hmm. And that value typically relies in what is it like the status it gives you, or is it the community that you access, or is it like, because it's so many different things, right? It is so many different things. And I think at the moment, I think there's a lot of hype, as I said, um, which I think is kind of dangerous. I mean, the key word, I do a lot of research on the contemporary art market, and I always say the key word in contemporary is temporary. Right? Oh, wow. So whatever is kind of fashionable and trendy now does not mean it has long-term value. That it will you know, last. Years, yeah, that it's going to be worth anything at all. And I think with most, most NFTs, aesthetically they're not necessarily kind of brilliant and I don't think many of them will kind of survive in the long term in terms of valuable even if the kind of technologies and platforms they're on do last which also is debatable um so so in that sense I think there's a lot to be kind of aware of and to be suspicious of um but in terms of those values I guess part of it is kind of being able to say you're part of the club and I think that's a that's a huge kind of if you look at Twitter and the kind of conversations about NFTs, there's a lot of this kind of mm -hmm. um, what I will call perhaps slightly uh, in a sexist way, bro kind of behavior. Yeah. <laughs> but uh -huh. um, so I think that's kind of one key thing um, and kind of feeling like you're part of something new and you're kind of, there's always, I mean, I think a lot of the interest is this sense that they could make money, right? So mm. it, in a way it's very much like gambling, which is why I think it's very dangerous because I don't think they, they will necessarily. I think in most cases they won't, they'll lose money. Um, but it is this sense of kind of being, yeah, being part of something before it actually happens. Um, I think if you're buying kind of proper NFTs, and I do know a few collectors who are kind of interested in this space and are doing a lot of research in terms of finding um, artists who kind of do interesting things. Mm -hmm. um, I think in that sense, it's more about, um, again, kind of being ahead of the curve. So there is a certain kind of... Um, uh, should we say cultural capital involved in that, mm -hmm. um, but also kind of thinking about how do you support kind of new forms of art, right? And and yeah. you know supporting the artists and creating their vision in a way that perhaps they couldn't do it before on paper or on canvas. 
which is what I was going to say, like that one of the, the, the advantages that people have been highlighting is that, you know, like the new art, new artists and, and also like current artists, I guess, are, are sort of like finding a way to fund their own development and to get kind of like their community around their art. So that is uh, quite interesting. Okay, yeah, I think I mean, this, yeah. Damien, Damien Hurst, is, um, who's kind of, again, another brilliant kind of uh, artist marketer, um, who's made an absolute fortune in kind of selling his art uh, in very interesting ways. Uh, I mean, he had um, he had a kind of project, or he's I think it's still perhaps currently going, um, where um, he kind of uh, sold ten thousand uh, NFTs, mm-hmm. uh, but they're also kind of hand painted works. Uh, so okay. there's ten thousand kind of actual works and ten thousand NFTs of the work. And so when you buy one, you get both pieces, but then after a year, you need to decide which one you want to destroy. So that's oh, really wow. interesting because it, are you going to kind of, you know, keep the, 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 the hard copy, if you like, and put that on your wall or, or and destroy the NFT, or are you going to put, do you think it's worth kind of keeping the NFT and getting rid of the hard copy? So it's interesting to think about that. That is super interesting. I didn't know about that, That is fantastic. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's also kind of like, a, and I guess it's, it comes also as, a, as an art statement, right? It's like, where is this all thing going, right? Well, where is the value? Yeah, where is, Ex- where is the long-term value? And, and wow. uh, yeah, I mean, I've written a paper on Damien Hurst and, and he's, he's just a brilliant marketer. Whatever you think of his art, uh, he's very good at, yeah. uh, at selling it for sure. Yeah. Okay, Chloe, so this has been a, a, a fantastic interview. I've been talking about several topics uh, um, and, and I just have one final question, which I also ask to all of uh, our guests. And the, the question is, uh, so as, as I said at the beginning, this podcast is uh, sometimes directed to uh, students in customer experience management, sometimes to people that are working actively in customer experience management and so on. So if you could give them like two or three tips, recommendations, when they're working with customer experience management, perhaps at the, you know, like thinking about how they can use art or storytelling or immersive uh, experiences, what would you tell them? Okay, um, so the first thing I would probably say is uh, think of the kind of artistic perspective, right? Uh, in anything that you do. Um, and I think often it's kind of worth talking to artists um, and, and kind of drawing from their experience, because as I said, I think we have a lot to learn from uh, you know, how they interact with uh, various technologies or, or various medium, media. Um, uh, now, if you are going to do that, uh, you have to pay the artist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no exploiting of artists, please. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the kind of first thing to think about. The second thing to think about is your customer, your audience, right? Uh, really understanding your customer. I mean, this is not new. This is the heart of marketing, right? Uh, marketing is about a value proposition to a specific group of people. So thinking about that specific group of people and what is the added value. And I think often that added value can be kind of arts, um, arts related, um, at least. So if you're thinking about that audience more carefully, you know, Um, I think what my work kind of really uh, draws on is thinking also about kind of issues like power dynamics um, and who has access and who doesn't have access. And we talked about that in terms of technology, uh, but thinking about, you know, the individual and their kind of uh, subjective experiences and how that impacts on them, I think, I think is quite interesting as well. Um, So thinking perhaps about the wider picture in terms of uh, that customer and what they're comfortable with doing and what they're not comfortable with doing uh, based on their own kind of prior histories. Um, and, and yeah, really thinking through the kind of the different aspects of that. 
those are excellent recommendations and I really value the recommendation also uh, about the, the thinking of the customer. I think sometimes uh, we uh, get excited about the, the, you know, like the rapid changes that we're seeing in the world and the excitement around those changes rather than focusing that in the end, the person, like the, 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 the thing that matters is who is going to use it, for what purposes are they going to use it and how we can actually capitalize on that. Yeah, I mean, do they actually want it in the first place? You know, and, and I think, you know, it, it's about thinking through that process because even if you can't think of a kind of obvious audience at the beginning or an obvious purpose, and, and the key point about art is that often it's not functional, right? Mm. Um, but there is a certain value, but it's about kind of demonstrating that value. Right. So often that's the point that artists struggle. They don't know how to demonstrate the value of their work. But actually, it's about kind of as marketers, our role is to unpack that and to really explain what that value is so that audiences are more educated and more aware and more willing to try new things, perhaps. Chloe, this has been a fantastic interview. I will, would like to thank you a lot for, for your time. Uh, and uh, I'm going to be looking forward to your upcoming research. Um, so thank you very much for taking part in this interview um, and good luck with your research. Thank you so much for having me.